0: Chapter Two, Part One of Victorian Literature. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Victorian Literature by Clement Shorter. Chapter Two, The Novelists, Part One. Any comparison. Of the novels of the Victorian era, with the novels of the Georgian period, must be very much to the disadvantage of the former. The great epoch of English fiction began with Goldsmith and Richardson, and ended with Sir Walter Scott. It was an epoch which gave us the Vicar of Wakefield, Clarissa, Tom Jones, Bride and Prejudice, Humphrey Clinker, and Tristram Shandy that fiction had a naturalness and spontaneity to which the novels of the victorian era can lay no claim the novels of the period with which we are concerned aspired to regenerate mankind dickens indeed started off with but little literary equipment save sundry eighteenth-century novels he had read smollett and fielding and stern diligently but the influence of these humorists so marked in pickwick became qualified in his succeeding books by the strenuous spirit of the times it is alike interesting in itself and convenient for my purpose that the most popular novelist of the victorian era should have published his first great book in eighteen thirty seven dickens awoke then to abundant fame and his popularity has never waned for an instant during the sixty succeeding years. Today he may be more or less decried by literary people, but his audience has multiplied twofold. He has added to it the countless thousands whom the school board has given to the reading world. Charles Dickens, eighteen twelve to eighteen seventy, was born at Landport, Portsea. His father being an improvident clerk in the Navy pay office at Portsmouth. Dickens Sr. has been immortalized for us by the not-too-pleasing portrait of Micawber. After infinite struggle and penury, Dickens became a reporter for the Morning Chronicle. Under the signature of Boss, he wrote sketches for the monthly magazine in 1834. Pickwick appeared from April 1836 to November 1837, and alike in parts and in book form, took the world by storm. It was succeeded by Oliver Twist, 1838, Nicholas Nickleby, 1839, The Old Curiosity Shop, 1840, and Barnaby Rudge, 1841. From this time forth, Dickens was the most popular writer that our literature has seen. Within twelve years after his death, some four millions of his books were sold in England, and there is no reason to believe that this popularity has in any way abated, although George Eliot foretold that much of Dickens's humour would be meaningless to the next generation, that is to say, to the generation which is now with us. It is the fashion to call Dickens the novelist of the half-educated, to charge him with lack of reflectiveness with incapacity for serious reasoning his humour has been described as insincere his pathos as exaggerated much of this indictment may with equal justice be made against richardson and even against jane austen who surely anticipated dickens by the creation of the reverend william collins if dickens had been a learned university professor he would not have possessed the equipment most needful for the artist who was to portray to us in an imperishable manner the london which is now fast disappearing the people who censure dickens are those for whom he has served a purpose and is of no further use they are a mere drop in the ocean of readers it is not easy to day to gauge his precise position The exhaustion of many of his copyrights has given up his work to a host of rival publishers. There are probably thousands of men and women, now, as there were in the fifties and sixties, who have been stimulated by him, and who have found in his writings the aid to a cheery optimism which has made life more tolerable amid adverse conditions. Mrs. Richmond Ritchie, Thackeray's daughter, tells us how keenly Dickens's capacity for steering the heart was felt even in the home of the rival novelist. Thackeray's youngest daughter, then a child, looked up from the book she was reading to ask the question, Papa, why do you not write books like Nicholas Nickleby? Thackeray himself shared the general enthusiasm. David Copperfield, he writes to a correspondent. By Chingo it is beautiful it is charming bravo dickens it has some of his very brightest touches those inimitable dickens touches which makes such a great man of him and the reading of the book has done another author a great deal of good it has put me on my mettle and made me feel that i must do something that i have fame and name and family to support if dickens is still beloved by the multitude The name of William Makepeace Thackeray, eighteen eleven to eighteen sixty three, has entirely eclipsed his in the minds of a certain literary section of the community. Thackeray stands to them for culture, Dickens for literacy. Thackeray had indeed a more polished intellect; he had also a more strained style. Thackeray was born at Calcutta. His father, who was an Indian civil servant died when the boy was only five years old he was educated at charterhouse school and trinity college cambridge in eighteen thirty one he went to weimar he studied long at paris with a few to becoming an artist and when pickwick wanted an illustrator to continue the work of seymour who had committed suicide thackeray applied to dickens but herbert brown was chosen and thackeray was disappointed happily for the world which lost an indifferent artist to gain a great author thackeray in eighteen thirty seven the year which saw the publication of pickwick as a volume joined the staff of Fraser's magazine in that journal appeared in succession the history of samuel titmarsh and the great hogarty diamond the yellow plush papers and the memoirs of barry lyndon in eighteen forty seven Vanity Fair was begun in numbers, and not till then did its author secure real renown. Pendennis was published in eighteen fifty, and Esmond in eighteen fifty two. The Newcomes, eighteen fifty four, is in some measure a sequel to Pendennis, as The Virginians, eighteen fifty eight, is in some measure a sequel to Esmond. These are the five works by Thackeray which every one must read. In 1857, Thackeray unsuccessfully contested Oxford. In 1859, he undertook the editorship of the new Cornhill magazine, which flourished in his hands. These were the Helicon days of magazine editors. On Macaulay's death in 1859, Thackeray talked of purchasing the historian's vacant house. A friend remarked upon his prosperity. To make money, one must edit a magazine was the answer he did not buy Macaulay's house but built himself one at palace green and here he died day before christmas day eighteen sixty three his daughter anne thackeray who became mrs richmond ritchie has written old kensington and other stories of singular charm the twenty-six volumes of thackeray's works make a veritable nursery of style for the modern literary as parent But it is, as has been said, upon his five great novels that his future fame must rest. They are as permanent a picture of life among the well-to-do classes as those Dickens has given us of life among the poor. Charlotte Bronte, eighteen sixteen to eighteen fifty five, who gave to Thackeray the enthusiastic hero-worship of her early years, called him a titan and dedicated Jane Eyre to him, had little enough in common with the author of Vanity Fair. The daughter of a poor parson of Irish birth, she was born at Thornton in Yorkshire. She and two sisters grew up in the cramped atmosphere of the vicarage at Hayworth, in the centre of the moorlands. They wrote stories and poems from childhood and dreamed of literary fame. Meanwhile, it was necessary to add to the scanty stipend of their father two of them went back as governesses to the school in which they had been educated and all of them a little later attempted the uncongenial life of private governesses the desire to have a school of their own led charlotte and her sister emily to brussels where they studied french and german returning to the hayworth parsonage the three sisters charlotte emily and anne with money left them by an aunt published a volume of verse poems by Curra, alice and acton bell then each sister produced from her drawer the manuscript of a novel and charlotte's professor emily's Wuthering heights and anne's agnes gray were sent round to the publishers and returned more than once to the parsonage finally The professor was read by Smith and Elder, who asked for a longer story by the writer. Jane Eyre, 1847, was the result, and that story became one of the most successful novels of the day. It was followed by Shirley, 1849, and Villette, 1853. In 1854, Charlotte Ponty became Mrs. Arthur Bell Nichols, and the wife of her father's curate. In the following year she died the professor was published two years after her death emily bronte eighteen eighteen to eighteen forty eight accomplished less than her elder sister but her name will live as long she secured the admiration of sydney Dobell, of matthew arnold and of mr swinburne and her best verse is perhaps the greatest ever written by a woman last lines and the old stoic will rank with the finest poetry in our literature her one novel wuthering heights has been most happily criticised by mr swinburne as was the author's life so is her book in all things troubled and taintless with little of rest in it and nothing of reproach it may be true that not many will ever take it to their hearts it is certain that those who do like it will like nothing very much better in the whole world of poetry or prose emily bronte's sole contributions to literature were the poems written in conjunction with her two sisters under the name of Alice bell some further poems published by her sister charlotte after her death and the single novel Wuthering heights anne bronte eighteen nineteen to eighteen forty nine wrote more than her sister emily but with less of recognition she contributed verses to the little volume of poems under the name of acton bell and additional verses were published after her death by charlotte in addition to this she wrote two novels the first of them agnes gray and the second the tenant of wildfell hall this last curiously enough went into a second edition during anne's lifetime and she contributed a preface to it defending herself against her critics Neither Anne's poetry nor her novels are of any account to-day. They would not be read were it not for the glory with which her two sisters have surrounded the name of Brontë. Women novelists have abundantly flourished during the Victorian era, but then the path was made easy for them by Jane Austen, Maria Edgeworth, and Fanny Burney. By all those who delight in debatable comparisons, the name of george eliot is frequently brought into contrast with that of charlotte Brontë. george eliot eighteen nineteen to eighteen eighty was born at griff in warwickshire her real name being mary ann evans she was for a time at a school at Nuneaton and afterwards at coventry at first she was an evangelical churchwoman but about eighteen forty two she became acquainted with two or three cultivated women friends at whose houses she met fruit emerson and francis newman all of whom represented a reverent antagonism to supernatural christianity in conjunction with sarah Hennell, she undertook a translation of strauss's life of jesus on her father's death in eighteen forty nine she came to london and became associated with dr chapman in the editorship of the westminster review it was a friendship with george henry lewes whom she met in eighteen fifty one which gave her the first impulse towards fiction lewes was an active critic and writer of two now forgotten novels miss evans's scenes of clerical life were sent to blackwood's magazine in eighteen fifty six the stories were a great success thackeray and dickens were loud in expressions of admiration in eighteen fifty nine adam Bede was published and made george Eliot famous it is the finest thing since shakespeare said charles reed her success however did not lead to hasty production she wrote only six novels during the remainder of her life i can write no word that is not prompted from within she said the Mill on the Floss was written in 1860, Silas Manor in 1861, Romola in 1863, Felix Holt in 1866, Middlemarch in 1871-1872, to and Daniel Deronda in 1876. In 1880, Miss Mary Ann Evans became Mrs. Walter Cross, but after a few months of wedded life, She died of inflammation of the heart at Four-Chain Walk, Chelsea. Her husband wrote her biography, not with much success. So entirely was George Eliot's best mind concentrated upon her books, that her letters and, indeed, her personality were a disappointment to all but a few hero-worshippers. The novels, with two volumes of poems and two of essays, make up George Eliot's collected works. The essays written before and after her novels give, like her letters, but few indications of her remarkable powers, nor, although the Spanish Gypsy is deeply interesting, can her poetry be counted for much. The choir invisible is her best known poem. It is by her novels that she must be judged, and these for insight into character, analysis of the motives which guide man, and sympathy with the intellectual and moral struggles which make up so large a part of life have a literary need to themselves with singular catholicity she paints the simplest faith and the highest idealism whether it be an evangelical clergyman a dissenting minister or a methodist factory girl she enters into the spirit of their lives with fullest sympathy carlyle could see in methodism only a religion fit for gross and vulgar-minded people a religion so called and the essence of it cowardice and hunger terror of pain and appetite for pleasure both carried to the infinite george eliot's sympathies were wider she won the heart of methodists who have stood in imagination listening to dinah morris addressing the Hayslow peasantry as she gained the devotion of roman catholics like lord acton who have seen in her portrait of savonarola a wise expression of their faith and it is not only in religious matters that her sympathies are so broad the sententious dulness of mr macy is as much within the range of her feelings as the manliness of adam Bede or the scholastic pride of old bardo she feels equally for the weak and frivolous hetty and the lofty self-sustained romola at least eighty out of a hundred she says of your adult male fellow Britons, returned in the last census are neither extraordinarily silly nor extraordinarily wicked nor extraordinarily wise their eyes are neither deep and liquid with sentiment nor sparkling with suppressed witticisms they have probably had no hair-breadth escapes or thrilling adventures their brains are certainly not pregnant with genius and their passions have not manifested themselves at all after the fashion of a volcano they are simply men of complexions more or less muddy whose conversation is more or less bold and disjointed yet these commonplace people many of them bear a conscience and have felt the sublime promptings to do the painful right they have their unspoken sorrows and their sacred joys their hearts have perhaps gone out towards the first-born and they have mourned over the irreclaimable dead nay is there not a pathos in their very insignificance in our comparison of their dim and narrow existence with the glorious possibilities of that human nature which they share depend upon it you would gain unspeakably if you would learn with me to see some of the poetry and the pathos the tragedy and the comedy lying in the experience of a human soul that looks out through dull gray eyes and that speaks in a voice of quite ordinary tones the creations of george eliot tito and baldassar mrs poyser and silas manner, dorothy brooke and gwendoline are not as familiar to the reading public of to-day as they were to that of ten or fifteen years ago of the idolatry which almost made her a prophetess of a new cult we hear nothing now she has not maintained her position as dickens thackeray and charlotte bronte have maintained theirs but if there be little of partisanship and much detraction, it is idle to deny that george Eliot's many gifts her humour her pathos her remarkable intellectual endowments give her an assured place among the writers of victorian literature the next in order of prominence among the novelists of the period is charles kingsley eighteen nineteen to eighteen seventy five he was born at Holme vicarage on the borders of dartmoor and was educated at king's college london and magdalene college cambridge after this he received the curacy of Eversley in hampshire of which parish he finally became rector in eighteen forty eight he published a drama entitled the Saint* strategy with saint elizabeth of hungary as heroine a year later his novel of elton locke gained him the title of the chartist parson this tale in which carlyle is introduced in the person of an old scotch bookseller was a crude and yet vigorous expression of sympathy with the chartist movement and its influence was tremendous for its sympathy with the working classes and in its reflection of the broad and tolerant christianity of which kingsley was always the eloquent preacher elton locke in common with yeast and two years ago is a valuable contribution to literature kingsley however became a truer artist when as in hypatia and westward ho he had no social and religious ends in view hypatia in spite of many historical errors is a brilliant sketch of the early church at alexandria gibbon from whom kingsley obtained the hint for this book would have revelled in the apparent endorsement by a latter-day clergyman of his estimate of the early christianity of the east westward hoe is a picturesque narrative of english rivalry with spain in the reign of elizabeth The contrasts of character in Frank and Lay, perhaps give this novel a claim to be considered Kingsley's best effort. He wrote many other works, including children's stories, scientific lectures, and poems, among which last the beautiful Ballads, The Three Fishes, and The Sands of Dee are the most popular. For nine years he held the office of Professor of Modern History at Cambridge University, but his unphilosophical views of history made his presence there a misfortune. A model country clergyman, a man essentially healthy-minded and interested in all phases of life and thought, Kingsley's influence, especially on young men, during the past five-and-thirty years has been very great and very beneficial. End of chapter two, part one. Recording by Jule